Well, if you've uh, been here at all this summer, you know that we've been going through a series called the Summer Psalms, and this is actually the last week of that series. Uh, but I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but uh, you know that there are 150 psalms altogether, and Tate and Josh only managed to get through 14 of those. So we've got some ground to cover this morning. <laughs> I told Tiffany we really should have just gone out of town Labor Day weekend like everybody else. But don't worry, I've got you covered because the uh, coffee bar served triple shots this morning. Hopefully your nine-year-old sitting next to you did not get one. Obviously, I'm just kidding. We're, we're going to be uh, just going through Psalm 15 today, and that'll be the last psalm in the series. Now, I've got to be honest with you. When I first read this text, Psalm 15, I, I recoiled a little bit, and uh, that is because for many years of my life, I would have loved to have used this psalm as a a perfect launching point for one of those types of do-better, try-harder type of sermons. You know the kind, right? The one where you can guilt-trip a church into shaping up to stop sinning and serve the programs of the church more, come to the altar and rededicate your life to Christ for the ninth time this year. And of course, my personal favorite, obey some ridiculous rules that we just made up and aren't anywhere to be found in the Bible. Because, well, that's, that's just what we have to do to be good Christians and, you know, to get God to like us more than all of his other children. And, of course, I would have never said it that way, but that really was at the heart of it. Well, I have good news for you. This is not going to be one of those type of sermons. And while at first glance it might appear that this passage in Psalm 15 is just a simple list of do's and don'ts, that we should practice in order to be good, moral people, I think you'll see in a moment that there is much more to it than just that. So let's begin by by asking the same question that David asks here in verse 1. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Well, first we should probably figure out what uh, what David is talking about when he He speaks of God's tent and his holy hill. Now, first, when I read this, I I got kind of excited. I thought, okay, we have a tent. There's a hill. I think what this is saying is that God likes to go camping. God and I have something in common. And notice that he doesn't say anything about an RV or a travel trailer. So I think that must mean that us real campers and tents are closer to God than, than the glampers. That might offend you, but the Bible said it, not me. But seriously, though, this tent and this holy hill are are very significant. Uh, Kids, you might remember the story of when uh, God's people, Israel, they were slaves in Egypt, and God rescued them and brought them out of Egypt. And as they traveled through the desert to the promised land that God would give them, God instructed Moses and the people to build a special tent Does anybody know what that tent is called? Do any kids know? You can go ahead and say it. What's the name of that tent? Come on, I'm giving you permission to talk in church. You're not, you got to take advantage of it. There you go. Good job, Tabernacle. You get 500 points. I don't know what those points are worth, but you got them. So this Tabernacle, 
uh, it was a very special place, and it, it was composed of different parts. You had uh, the, the inner, or sorry, the outer court, uh, which is everything that's inside of that border, inside of those walls. That was where the priests would offer sacrifices for the sins of the people on the altar. Then there was the tent itself. It was divided into two rooms. The first room that they would enter into was called the holy place. That was where only the priests could go. Then in the back room of that tent was an inner sanctuary called the Holy of Holies, where God said that his glory and his presence would dwell. It was separated from the rest of the tabernacle by a thick curtain that hung down from the ceiling. Now, I want you to remember this curtain because we'll talk more about it later. But the thing about the the Holy of Holies is that not even the regular priests could go in there. In fact, it was only the, the high priest, one man, and he could only go in, not whenever he wanted, but one day every year on the Day of Atonement. And even then, he could only go in after he did a series of, of ceremonial washings and sacrifices to symbolize that he was purified and cleansed from sin. This, this tent, this tabernacle, this is the tent that David is speaking about here in verse 1. Now, what about the holy hill? What does that mean? Well, during David's life, there was a time when this tabernacle, it was not located in Jerusalem where you'd expect it to be, but it was actually at Mount Gibeon, about 10 miles north of Jerusalem. So David could be speaking about that mountain, Mount Gibeon, or perhaps of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, which is another very important spiritual location in the culture of the ancient Jews. That's also uh, Mount Moriah from the story of Abraham and Isaac, but it's also called Mount Zion. This was the mountain where the temple would eventually be built. But no matter which mountain it is that David is speaking of, Mount Gibeon or Mount Zion, what David is basically saying here, he is asking the same question in two different ways when he says, who can sojourn in your tent and who can dwell on your holy hill? He's asking the question, Who is it that can be with God? Who has the right to be in the presence of the creator of the universe? David speaks here of sojourning and dwelling. The Hebrew word to sojourn, it means to live somewhere as a foreigner or a stranger. So this isn't just a a a once-in-a-year visit like the high priest into the Holy of Holies. This isn't even a a once-a-week Sabbath visit into the holy place from the priests. No, to sojourn is is to come from another place and to stay where you did not used to belong. And to dwell means to take up residence somewhere. For example, I dwell at 1105 Northeast 6th Street, Battleground, Washington. That is my dwelling place. That is where I live. So what we're talking about here is making our home where God is living where God lives, spending all our lives and all the rest of eternity with the God of the universe. What kind of person is worthy of that? Well, let's just see if there's anyone here who is worthy of that. We're going to play a little game. Uh, We all like to play games, right? You're probably not going to like this game. 
This is a game that I like to call You're a Liar. <clears throat> and here's how it works. Uh, I'll ask a series of questions based on Psalm 15, and if you raise your hand in response to any of these questions, then you're a liar. Very simple rules. This is probably the point where Tate is regretting that he asked me to preach. <clears throat> Verse 2 of Psalm 15. Is there anyone here who has walked blamelessly all their life? Which means that you can't be accused for any wrong that you've done. And not only that, but you've always done what's right. And you have always spoken truth, not just with your mouth, but even in your heart. If that's you, raise your hand. No hands. Verse 3. Is there anyone here who has never spoken anything false about someone else? Has never done any evil to another person? You've never shown unfair disapproval of a friend? Raise your hand. Verse 4. Is there anyone here who is always, with perfect judgment, called good what is good and evil what is evil? You've never made a, a hero, for example, out of a politician, an athlete, or a movie star who's godless and corrupt? You've never disrespected someone who fears the Lord and who was only trying to enforce what's good and godly and right? If that's you, raise your hand. Now, verse 5. This one might seem like it's easier because most of us could probably say, well, I've never loaned my money to someone with interest or I've never taken a bribe. But culturally speaking, if we were to apply this to our modern context, what David essentially is saying here is, have you ever taken advantage of somebody for your own benefit? Raise your hand if you've never done that. Well, I didn't see any hands, so congratulations, you, you passed, you won the game. Uh, but in doing so, you and I have both admitted that we are completely unworthy to dwell in the presence of God. Now maybe, just, just maybe there is someone here who says, you know, I look at Psalm 15 and, and I think, man, I, I could maybe live up to that. I think I could do that. If I set enough goals and I tried hard enough, I could be that blameless person that David's talking about. Okay, well, let's just stop for a moment <clears throat> and consider how Jesus, in his teaching, took the Old Testament law and then revealed to us just how difficult it is to live up to it. He did this mostly through his Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7, and it's actually the longest teaching of Jesus that was ever recorded. It is essentially an explanation of how Jesus expects his followers to live. And much like Psalm 15, it's a picture of what God intended humanity to be. It lays the foundation on which all of the Christian life is built. But yet at the same time, it holds us to an impossible standard that we could never live up to. If you thought the law of Moses was difficult, well, Jesus shows how the law doesn't only require outward obedience to rules, but it also requires loving obedience from the heart. For example, you think you're good because you've never committed the physical act of adultery? Well, Jesus says you're guilty of it even if you've looked at someone with lust in your heart. 
You think you're good because you've never murdered anyone? Well, Jesus says that if you hate someone, you're guilty of murder. You think you're good because you love your friends and family? Well, Jesus says that we must also love even our enemies and not retaliate against those who are unjust towards us. Have you always done that? And this is just scratching the surface of everything that Jesus taught. Speaking of the Sermon on the Mount, I just so happened to be reading through that right before I started studying Psalm 15, and I was amazed by how many parallels there are between Psalm 15 and Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. So I want to show some of these to you so that we can see how Jesus in no way does away with the themes of Psalm 15, but rather he reinforces them in his teaching and actually follows the same exact pattern as Psalm 15. So let's look at verses 1 and 2 in Psalm 15. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart. Jesus said, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying the same thing as David, isn't he? You want to have access to God? You want to be where he is? You want to enter his kingdom? Then be righteous. Not just a little righteous. No, your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and Pharisees. The scribes and Pharisees, these were the the professional scholars of their day. They had dedicated their lives to studying the word of God and obeying his law. Now, of course, Jesus during his ministry showed how even they fell pathetically short. But if there was any human standard of righteousness at that time, they were it. And you have to be even better than they were if you want to enter God's kingdom. Verse 3 of Psalm 15. This person who can dwell with God is one who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend. Jesus said, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Then the last half of verse 4 in Psalm 15, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. Jesus said, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all. And then skipping to the end, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. David says that if you, if you swear to do something, you must follow through with it, even if it hurts you to do so. But Jesus said you shouldn't even swear at all or take an oath because your word should be so sure and trustworthy that your yes always means yes and your no always means no. Nobody should ever doubt what you say. The first half of uh, verse 5 in Psalm 15, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. Jesus said, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. 
Now, this one is, is so interesting. The way that David wraps up Psalm 15 and the way that Jesus finishes his Sermon on the Mount, they're, they're saying literally the same exact thing. David says, He who does these things shall never be moved. Jesus said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Isn't it interesting how near the very beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, you want to be where God is? Then you have to be perfectly righteous. What does being righteous look like? Well, he goes on then to explain in detail how a righteous person behaves both towards God and others, how they think, what their motives are. Then he finishes by essentially saying that he who hears these things and does them will never be moved. Just like what David said. You know, just like the extended edition of The Lord of the Rings is so much better than the regular version, the Sermon on the Mount is literally Psalm 15, the extended edition. It's like Jesus did a a cover song of an old classic song, but did it way better than the original artist. Now, if you're over the age of 40 and you don't know what a cover song is, don't worry about it. I didn't know either. Somebody younger than me had to explain it. It's basically just where an artist redoes somebody else's song. That was free. But if Jesus says that our righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees, then what hope do we really have? How is it ever possible that we could gain access to God? How could we sojourn in his tent and dwell on his holy hill? Well, I think it should be obvious by now that it, it can never be by our perfect obedience to God's law. If it was, we are all hopelessly lost. We are completely unable to be the kind of righteous Psalm 15 man or woman that God requires of those who would dwell with him. Galatians 3, 10 and 11 says, For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. You know, when someone is drowning, they don't need swim lessons at that moment. They don't need 10 steps to be a better swimmer. And they don't need to be told, oh, well, just do what Michael Phelps would do. What they need is a rescuer, an incredibly strong swimmer who can come to where they are, pull them up, hold them in their arms, swim them to safety, and literally breathe life back into their lungs. If you know anything about rescuing a drowning person, you know that the more that that person struggles and tries to rescue themselves, the worse worse they are. The one being saved must simply relax 
and go limp in the arms of the one who is rescuing them and allow that rescuer to do what they were completely incapable of doing themselves. And in the same way, we need a rescuer. We need a perfect lawkeeper who can obey God in every way and be that righteous Psalm 15 man that we never could be ourselves. We need Jesus, who is in every way like we are, yet without sin. He showed us what a perfect human looks like. He showed us what keeping God's law from the heart looks like. Let me read just a few verses to emphasize this. 1 Peter 2, 22-24. He, that's Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Second Corinthians 5.21, for God, uh, sorry, for our sake he, that is God, made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him, that's in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. And then Romans 3, 21 and 22. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. While we were drowning in sin, Jesus did what we could never do ourselves by perfectly keeping God's law and then giving his perfect life as a sacrifice for sin once for all. No more need of a tabernacle, no more need of the altar, no need for sacrifices. Jesus did it all to give us access into the very presence of God. Now, I know what some of you may be thinking because it's, it's what every believer thinks from time to time. I know that I have. How can it be true that I really can have this access into God's holy presence when I really don't feel like I'm good enough. I know that I still sin. I don't feel like a righteous person today. Well, let me ask you this. Which is greater? How you feel about yourself or what God says is true about you? Because God says, and the truth is, that our righteousness does not depend upon our performance or upon how we feel in the moment, but simply upon our faith in Jesus, putting all your trust in what he did, not in what you can do. The righteous one who has access to dwell with God is not the one who has earned it, but the one who has received it as a free gift. If there's nothing else that you get from this this morning, Please get this passage from Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places. Does that sound familiar? The tabernacle and then the temple that came after the tabernacle. The holy places, the places where only the priests can go. 
the place where God's holy presence dwells, we now have confidence to enter into these holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. There's that curtain again. You realize that the moment that Jesus died, the curtain in the temple was torn into from top to bottom. No person did that. God himself opened the way, inviting us to come and have access to him through Christ. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest, that's Jesus, no more need for a high priest, we have Jesus over the house of God. Since we have this priest over the house of God, let us draw near, there it is, coming into the access, or, or having access to come into the presence of God. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Ephesians 2.18, for through Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This gospel is good news to all types of people. It is good news to the one who tries too hard and it is good news to the one who has given up trying. The overachiever and the legalist must stop trying to earn access to God through his own self-righteousness and rest in the finished work of Christ. Knowing that you are made righteous by Jesus and by his works, not by your own. And it's the same solution for the one who often fails and knows that he's not righteous, the one who's given up trying. You must stop living in defeat and rest in the finished work of Jesus, having confidence that you are already made righteous in him. But I have a feeling that many of us fall into a third category. We're the ones who have taken this grace for granted those of us who have accepted this free gift, while over the course of many years in our Christian life, we've forgotten that the one who gives this gift also calls us to be like him. We think that this gift of righteousness is a free pass to live however we want. Brothers and sisters, we, we must not fall into this trap of thinking that because we are already declared righteous in Christ, because we don't have to earn God's love or acceptance or blessing, because we are already forgiven <clears throat> of all sin, past, present, and future, then we can just ignore a passage like this and treat Jesus like our get-out-of-hell-free card. He is not your free pass. He is your Lord and Master. And He calls you to be sanctified and transformed by his spirit to reflect his image in this world. Paul makes it very clear in Romans 6, 1 through 7. 
What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. So if that is you, and you are not in the process of being transformed by God's Spirit into the type of person that these verses in Psalm 15 describe, then your life is evidence against you that perhaps you never have truly understood and believed the gospel. We know that the gospel is that Jesus already fulfilled God's law by living the perfect life so that you don't have to. Then he gave his life and rose from the dead to rescue you from your sin and bring you to God. But let's not stop there. He also puts his spirit within you. He gives you a new heart and a new nature. He gives you new desires so that you actually want to be this Psalm 15 person. And then he also gives you the power to do it. You aspire to live a Christ-like, righteous life, blameless, speaking the truth from your heart. Do you have those desires? Does God's Spirit live within you? Are you confident that you were made righteous by Jesus and made worthy to dwell in God's presence forever? If not, then turn from your sin Believe on Jesus. Receive his righteousness. Put your faith not in yourself or in any other person or thing, but in what Jesus has done to tear down that curtain and open the way to God for you. But for those of us who are already trusting in Christ, knowing that we are declared righteous by him, we must strive to live consistent with who we already are. God says that we are righteous. Let's live like it. This is why it's important to consistently preach the gospel to ourselves and remind ourselves of these truths, especially on those days when I just don't feel like it. I don't feel like a righteous person. I don't feel like I should have access to the presence of God. So I'd encourage you to even say these things out loud to yourself. Yeah, just go ahead and talk to yourself like a crazy person. I do it, and I'm not crazy, right? I am made righteous by Jesus Christ. I have been given the right to have direct access to God the Father and to dwell with Him forever. I am God's temple, His dwelling place. I didn't say that, God did. I have the Holy Spirit living within me, and by his power, I can live in obedience to his word. I can be the blameless Psalm 15 man or woman by God's strength as I rest in the finished work of Christ. 
And as we are being transformed by Jesus into that righteous Psalm 15 person, we can hold on to the promise at the end of the psalm that he who does these things shall never be moved. Never is right now and never is forever. In Christ, we are unshakable, stable, steadfast, weathering all the storms of life by his grace until the day when God calls us to dwell with him for all of eternity in his kingdom. And so let's ask the same question that we did at the very beginning. Who is worthy to sojourn in God's tent? Who shall dwell on his holy hill? Who can enter the kingdom of heaven? The answer, the one who has been declared righteous by God through the work of Jesus and is now being sanctified and transformed into the image of Christ, the perfect righteous one. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we do not have to earn our access We don't have to perform any sacrifice or ritual. We simply come to Jesus, trusting in what he did. And we know that we can now have confidence and boldness to enter into the holy places, to dwell with you both now and forever by the blood of Christ. And so now, as we, as we worship, as we sing, may we do just that. Lord, we enter into your presence, not based on what we have done, not based on how good we are, but based solely upon the work of Jesus. And so we pray that you would transform us by your grace to make us more into the image of Christ, the one who we are trusting in and clinging to, to be our righteousness. We ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.